I think there's a space for us to talk about the fact that the two men who shot the police in Dallas and Baton Rouge were former military. Do we participate in a politics of cynicism or do we participate in a politics of hope? But when we are together, we got power and we can make decisions. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. We want to register to become first-class citizens. This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm Amy Allison. You can listen to episodes of this podcast on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can also tweet us at Democracy Color with questions, comments, episode suggestions, and your feedback. We look forward to hearing from you. Also, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and rate Democracy in Color on iTunes. You know, I'm just going to take a moment this week to share some personal reflections about what the hell is happening in our country, what's being said and what's not being said. The things that I have to say are so deep and personal and so meaningful to me that it's hard for me to just talk about it. So I asked Lula Matute, our wonderful podcast producer, say hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, to come come in the studio with me. Um, this whole thing started with Lulu telling me, and I hope I'm not saying too much, but Please um, saying that she ordered uh, a book I wrote in 2007 uh, called Army of None, and she was reading it because she herself was looking for information. You're looking for information because you're considering joining the military. And um, for those of you who don't know, Lulu is a, you're a junior now, UC mm-hmm. Berkeley. Uh, a wonderful, talented, brilliant young woman and um, someone that is in her you know, 20s, 20 years from now, is going to be doing amazing things. And so uh, when, I'm, when I have someone who I work with closely, like yourself, and um, who future matters to me because I want it to matter to a lot of people. The thought about the military was, you know, it's a question, I take it very seriously. And uh, when I heard the news of the Dallas shooting, the first thing I did was I text my friend and I said, when I read that the shooter took an elevated position with a long range rifle to shoot the police officers, I said, military training. Um, now I say military training and, um, people say support our troops. They actually don't know what I'm talking about. So this is my attempt to say what I'm talking about. The rest of the nation and the rest of the world are trying to make sense of the violence that's been unfolding around the last few weeks, last few months, last few years around race and racism. And we have to credit the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the most prominent voice right now to say the simple statement that the violence against our citizens is unjust. 
we have to thank them. We have to thank the brave young women that are leading this movement um, and the people that have put their bodies on the line um, to make that clear that we are better than that. The story, though, about what's happening in Dallas and in the the, uh, police killings in Baton Rouge, all of those are very complicated stories because it's got more layers than is immediately obvious. I mean, everybody's got an opinion about this. Some, as we know, more thoughtful than others about violence and racial tensions. I'm reading that the right wing now is starting to blame Black Lives Matter's activists for police shootings. They could not be more wrong and misguided, dangerous to call people um, enemies when Black Lives Matter movement's a nonviolent movement. So this isn't a theoretical thing. We're, I'm offering these comments in the context of what's actually happening right now in the country we live. And I point out military training because I have personal experience. I know what it is like to be to join. I enlisted in the Army Reserves at 17. And a lot of, like a lot of young people, I don't come from um, a rich family, and I want to go to college. And no matter I got a straight A's and I was debate champion or whatever, it didn't matter. There wasn't enough money to go to college. And the recruiter who was on my campus, high school campus, in Antioch, California, promised that if I joined the military, my problems would be solved. But what happened was I went to training. I learned to shoot M16s and M60s. I learned to shut my mouth and not question the supremacy of the uniform and orders. That is what I was taught. I learned things. I, I, I was a uh, 91 Alpha was in my military occupational specialty. So I went to training in San Antonio, Fort Sam Houston. They taught me as a medic this concept um, called triage. In civilian life, triage makes a lot of sense. We have a, a fire or some kind of accident, and a bunch of people are taken to the emergency room, and um, the nurse performs a triage. She prioritizes those that are most injured to be treated first. That's triage. But in, in military terms, I was taught triage meant you take those who are less injured and you prioritize them first because they're more likely to be returned to the battle. And when I remember them teaching me this and also telling me in no uncertain terms, you take people who are in a firefight and down if they look like they can't be patched up and sent back, you give them a shot of morphine, make them comfortable, and allow them to die. It was early in my military career that I felt this, this thing, this breaking of what is most precious and dear to me, which is my sense of right and wrong. But it wasn't just that. It was when I was at the Palo Alto Veterans Administration, that was my job, I worked in the para and quadriplegic wing. There were men, all men at that time, that had survived the Korean War conflict, or Vietnam conflict, or had been in Grenada, other places, um, that were broken. Their bodies were broken, but their minds were, a lot of them were broken. I couldn't wear my battle dress fatigues on um, because of what it would evoke. These were young people that came to the military with dreams of serving, of having a future, and having um, accomplishing things. 
And they came out the other side of this system broken. And that is why I want to talk to you about Dallas and Baton Rouge. I know because I experienced the brokenness of being deeply challenged. My moral center and what I thought was right. Over time, when I uh, worked with the veterans that were treated so badly, and then later uh, when I counseled, uh, and you know, when you have this brokenness, a lot of people don't make it through whole. Now, I did, but I became a very unusual thing. I applied for a discharge as a conscientious objector. That's what I did when you have something called moral injury, which is a something we're just beginning to understand. So I think there's a space for us to talk about the fact that the two men who shot the police in Dallas and Baton Rouge were former military. I think it matters. It actually matters a lot. Um, if we think about it, uh, the guy Micah Johnson, he left, for Texas, left Texas for Afghanistan at the age of 22. He'd already gone through his training. He was a reservist. And everything that the people in his unit were, would say is that he was somebody who just really wanted to make a difference. He really wanted to go out there. And then eight months later, he came back from Afghanistan a different person. His mother said he was different. He was alone. He was isolated. He showed signs of mental distress. No one from his unit checked on him for a long time. He had a back injury that he got in Afghanistan. He tried to go to the VA for help. And the, so much paperwork, he just he didn't, even, he didn't even get any help. So we have somebody, a young person that we took and trained. When you train someone, you take someone and you teach them to follow orders, even if those orders mean to shoot and kill or to refuse to treat someone. I heard so many stories from, from people that have been in Iraq and Afghanistan. That, that person, you know, and in this case, Mike Johnson, saw and experienced things that I will bet broke him, that he showed, exhibited the signs of PTSD, maybe, which can be treated with a pill, or moral injury, which cannot be treated. You cannot treat that. Once you break it, you're broken. And most people can't just go back in society. And I think that's what happened in his case. I mean, it's interesting that also um, Gavin Eugene Long, uh, who was in the shootout in Baton Rouge, also went through the military. And I think we need to have a national conversation about the more than three million people who have been cycled through in the longest war in our history, who have been cycled through training into Iraq and Afghanistan more than once and broken. And I, I, I could tell you, as a former member of the military, I went and co-produced something called The War Comes Home, which, which was uh, a, a, the Iraq Veterans Against the War hosted a three-day public testimony featuring people that had been there, and they were talking about their experiences. They talked about moral injury. They talked about PTSD. They talked about veteran suicides. All those people posting on Facebook, doing push-ups to show they want to increase the uh, visibility of the fact that veterans are committing suicide at alarming rates. 
The thing that we have to understand is when we put people through that cycle and we do not catch them on the other side, they are broken people. That is why there's so many um, suicides on that end. And I'm, I guess what I'm saying is I'm just, I'm just going off right now. I'm just totally going off. <laughs> but I guess what I want to say is that when I, when I was part of Winter Soldier, I heard the stories. You know, there was one woman who uh, joined uh, the Army National Guard. Uh, her MOS was supply. So really, if you're 18 and you sign up for supply, you're expecting to be filing things or putting things in shelves. She was deployed to Iraq. And I remember her crying in this little, it was almost like a little room. It was small as a closet. It was sort of dark. And she's crying and crying and telling me what had happened to her is they changed her MOS and she started doing night patrols. And she started manning a very large gun on this um, the patrol vehicle. They go into these compounds. They're looking ostensibly for uh, somebody. They knock down the door um, in the middle of the night. And they start going room to room. And they are scaring people off, screaming. There's some, there's some gunfire. And they round up all the women and kids. And her job was in her full uh, battle gear. So you could think of like the helmet and the goggles and um, the tan BDUs and, the, and her gun. And she's standing, her job was to stand guard over this group of about 30 women and, and, and children. And she, you can hear in the other parts of their family compound things being broken, uh, people yelling, someone getting hurt, someone screaming. And she was holding her gun and looking at this group of people, she said, you could cut the tension with a knife. All of a sudden, she noticed a little boy, he was like four or so, threw up. And she was like, huh, he must be sick. He must be like, I wonder why he's throwing up. And then across the room, a little girl, a little older, threw up. And there was a moment in which she said, she realized why they were throwing up was because they were terrified of her. And for her, this young, she's actually a very beautiful woman who joined the National Guard for these really more noble reasons, became a monster to herself. From that moment, she tried to commit suicide twice. She's been on meds. She's not okay. She was in Iraq now we can say eight years ago, she's not okay today. And what I'm saying is the war always comes home. And when we look at these shooters, what I want to say is the war comes home and the war is at home. And it is time for us to ask some serious questions about our responsibilities as um, to the people that we ask to give this sacrifice to. That the truth of the matter is that some people that go through the training are not okay. There's a lot of reasons for that. But that moral injury is, can lead to serious distress, serious depression, suicidality, and it has a lot of triggers. So all I'm asking for when people are looking at and pointing the finger at and trying to dismiss the fact that they were military veterans, I'm saying that's not a side issue. To me, that is the issue. And I believe we're sitting now 
on a powder keg, you know? I think I think the combination of damaged people that come through military training, and by the way, a lot of the police officers also come through that experience. They're trained, explicitly trained, to use military weaponry and tactics on civilian populations. So it is not that different to come back to whatever city and use those same tactics against the people who live here. And I believe that we can, if we're willing to ask, is to really have that conversation, ask those hard questions. It doesn't have to explode the way that people fear. If we accept that it's wrong, or we ask, willing to ask, at least ask the question, is it wrong that to teach um, young people in the military, as I was taught, to kill, to kill, to kill with no mercy, what makes the grass grow? Blood, blood makes the grass grow. If, we, if, it, we, if we're willing to ask if that's okay, and we're, if we look at our responsibility to people who we send out to give that sacrifice, then the question of how we support people, what we ask people to do in, um, for their service to their country, what we ask them to do and how, um, and how they are treated and held when they come back is the question. It's time for us to have a, to reclaim ethical and moral leadership in this country. We are going down a path that is not good. But if we look at people in the military, what's happened to them? The fact the war never ended. For those two young men, the war never ended. Millions and millions of people like that, you know? And the military is full of people, immigrants, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, it's everyone, most everyone is working class. You know, just that's the thing. So know that there's lots of desperate people out there and we have a society with easy access to guns. So we need to think about what is just and what is right as we try to improve and make things better for ourselves. We need to ask, what is just war? Were we just in a just war? And did the people who participate, were they damaged because it wasn't? We need to, in the same vein, ask, what is just policing? And can damaged people be just police? You know, when we're damaged or we suffer moral injury, we're less as a nation. So I think that our, our great opportunity is to look with a sense of understanding on the shooters, who they were and what could have made them into who they are, and recognize our collective responsibility for that. We're as responsible for descending into violence as we are for saying that we have a new way. I've seen enough in my more than 25 years since leaving the military to know that people's lives and their futures are worth so much more, and that we have so much more to offer. And then if we take responsibility for everyone and understand that process, that we can, we can get through this together.
Democracy in Color is a project of Power Pack Plus. This episode was recorded in Emeryville, California, and produced by Lulu Matute with technical support from Anthony Hernandez. You can listen to future episodes at democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. If you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. Tell a friend, a colleague, or a neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. Thanks for joining us.